Don't be ashamed to learn things that you need to know. Here's Sexplanations with Dr. Doe. Episode 45 of the Sexplanations podcast with Ashley Wilde. Woo! 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 <laughs> Your partner works at a company that used to be owned by the person who contracts and produces Sexplanations. That's how we met. That is how we met. But you do all sorts of things related Absolutely. to sexuality and gender and children, which yeah. is like another crossover in our lives. And what else? What are what are the common things? YouTube. YouTube. You're a YouTuber. And kids is a big one, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Creative stuff and then children. Because I am a pretty constant foster parent and mm. you're... I work in the social work field and primarily with children in crisis. So with a lot of kids who are coming in and out of the foster system. Yeah. Yep. And then we're both YouTubers. Mm -hmm. Do you, you take that identity? Yeah. I would say like if there's a list of 10 identities, it's maybe like lower, but it's certainly on the list. Well, yeah. yeah. And it's a good one for us to talk about because you do tag videos and travel blogs and then you talk about identity and mm -hmm. gender. I know. I like to talk about educational things, but I also like to be a human. Mm -hmm. And I think where you can find a balance between those things is really exciting for me. Okay. Mm Tell me more. Well, you know, I like talking about gender and sexuality and I like... I don't know about teaching is so much as presenting my experience or the experiences of other people for educational purposes. Like I think that's enjoyable and that's really fun. But also I have like a life. I really love to travel and I like to do interesting and different things sometimes too. So on my channel, I'm trying to strike a balance between those two things where it's yes, there's the informational content, but also I have this human element of these are just things I experience and enjoy that are not so much for education or, you know, outreach. Yeah. So you're a smart vlogger. I guess. <laughs> I mean, if, if you're going to name me that, I'll take it. <laughs> I think if I wrote that in my bio or something that that probably wouldn't work. No, you can put it in quotation marks. <laughs> and then I can just cite Dr. Lindsay Doe and yep. it'll look really professional because yep. it's from a doctor. Yep. Cool. Yeah. There you go. That works. I Done. like that. I'm doing that. Good. Tagline accomplished. Awesome. Well, this episode is supported by our Patreon people, Sexplanauts, uh, specifically Joanna and Donna Flint. They pledged at the boss level, so I'm giving them this special shout out. The because boss level. Yeah. Love it. They basically get to tell me what to do because <laughs> I received the monies from them. Yep, definitely. Well, I'm endeared to them as well for right? being a part of the podcast that they are sponsoring. Yeah, yeah, they're sweethearts. So this is for them. And then what I was hoping we could talk about is all identity. Okay. Because um, four years ago, Nick Jenkins, who was the videographer, editor, and director of Sexplanations at the time, he took over the channel for that episode. And I, I think I was on vacation or traveling or something, and he wrote and hosted his own episode and it was all about identity. It was really beautiful. And what I loved is that then people took it and they turned it into an identity tag and all of these other oh, individuals cool. were doing the same thing. So I just want to hear as somebody who is so familiar with the topic and I think is really good at expressing your own identity. What are your thoughts on identity? 
Can we All just right. talk about that for yeah. like 45 minutes? I, absolutely. Okay, bring it. Okay. Well, my general thoughts on identity are that I think it's a very important tool. Mm-hmm. I think that it helps Ooh. people express themselves in a concise way to other people. That's mm-hmm. one of my favorite things about identity. And I think that a lot of times it can kind of get accidentally conflated with other things. Uh, For example, I don't consider identity to be prescriptive in any way. So if you identify as something, uh, personally, I don't think that that should limit any of your behavior or choices moving forward. So Ah. it's really all about like you. And so uh, my general thoughts on identity are that it is... Yeah, a tool, like I said, in that it can be really helpful, but also sometimes uh, gets conflated and then can be sort of oppressive in those situations if if you're not paying close attention. I like it. I was thinking, I think I went to a church garage sale. Okay. And they had the Enneagram book, and I thought about you. Oh, that's a good one. Because you do color code, right? The color code, yeah. But have you done Enneagram too? I have. I've done the Enneagram in the sense that I kind of like – explored my own personality and tried to familiarize myself with the basic tenets of the theories. Yeah. Um, I have an Enneagram book that I peruse. I wouldn't say I'm an expert, but I definitely know about it. See, because the way that you phrase that about it not being prescriptive, I really love because my tendency is to look at the color code or Enneagram, Myers-Briggs, Harry Potter, Sorting Hat, etc. Like, and this is me. And now this is how I behave. And if you are this, then this is how you will behave and this is how we will get along. And now, the, like, script made, done, check. And I love hearing that I can own those things, but that doesn't determine who I am or how I relate to others. Definitely. It's beautiful. I, it's cool. I think especially, like, what's interesting is they're they're important, like, maybe – So, okay, to put on the opposite side of prescriptive, I would maybe put predictive. And I think that tools like the color code and the Enneagram are really helpful from a predictive perspective where you're trying to just generate an idea of how something might happen in order to be better prepared. Mm -hmm. But when you accidentally, and this happens like totally subconsciously on accident to all people, like this happens to me all the time, when you use those tools instead to like formulate a behavior or make a decision or if you use it to like confine another person's actions into a box of what you believe the reason is around it and you don't give that person freedom to to be a whole well-rounded complex person that's where I feel like it's troubling Hmm. so I think using it in a predictive fashion probably most of the time going to be fine but when it's prescriptive it can be damaging okay so what are some of your identities okay like, I could probably say so many things. So I could be predictive, not prescriptive. Okay. Um, well, so in social justice theory in general, there's kind of like the big eight. So that's – I don't know them all eight off the top of my head, but I know that it's like gender, sexuality, I think like race and ethnicity, class. And so thinking from that perspective, mm-hmm. identify as non-binary. That's my gender identity. I identify uh, my sexuality as queer. I identify as a mixed race individual. I have a white parent and also a parent who is a person of color, Venezuelan. I identify as polyamorous. That's my relationship structure identity. And also, but identity gets so much broader. Like if we're talking about the color code, I identify as a yellow. If we're talking about... You're a yellow? I'm, I'm a yellow. yellow. Yeah. Did we know that we're both yellows? I didn't know that we're both yellows. Oh, okay. 
Uh, Enneagram, I identify as an eight. I don't know if you, yeah, I, I think you do. I think you identify with an Enneagram number. It would say I'm an eight. I don't remember mine. I think, I don't know. It's yeah. similar to Stevie's, but keep going. Stevie's an eight. So if it's similar, it's similar, probably like five or two or eight, or it okay, could be seven never or six. Mind, I have no <laughs> idea. <laughs> um, but if you step even further back, like you were saying, I identify as a YouTuber, as a writer, I identify as a partner and a sister and daughter. Those ones get tricky, but that's where I'm at with that. And oh. a pet mom and a hundred other things. Sister and daughter, mm-hmm. not child and sibling. Right. It's, I would say that in my experience, my evolving and continuous experience with language, that's where I'm at right now is I'm kind of facing words like sister and daughter and, and mom mm-hmm. um, and wrestling with them. And it's interesting because so my one of my brothers, mm-hmm. Cameron, is like my best friend. Mm-hmm. And he's so, so important to me and our relationship means the world to me. And I'm just so excited about that and grateful for that. And the word sister is a huge part of how he feels about me. And I don't think that if I ever said like, hey, let's use a different term to describe this relationship, that he wouldn't be receptive. It's more about the fact that with him, there's a very, there's very much a tenderness in the use of the word sister. And so for me, I'm, I'm sitting with that because Sister usually describes a person who identifies as a woman, and I do not identify as a woman. So even though I think maybe it might not be the most apt word, it does have kind of a sentimental element. And so, yeah, I have feelings about it. I feel things about the word sister, and I'm also maybe not so willing to to change that with him right now. And it's it's similar with daughter, that that just really means something to my mom. It means something from her. And so... It's not something I'm pushing on right now. I'm just sitting with it. Yeah, that's incredibly powerful. I have a friend. She has, I don't know how long she's identified as a woman, but um, maybe 20 years now and has adult children who call her, at least one of them calls her dad or daddy Mm. still. And it doesn't seem to affect her at all. She just, it's that kind of, that is how we are relating to each other. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't have anything to do with my identity. Right. And so I think that's up to you and it can be really empowering. It could also be really triggering, but it's for you to own and decide and cool. Yeah. Good on you. Thanks. All right. What about Harry Potter? Or Harry Potter, Hogwarts. I'm a Ravenclaw. You're a Ravenclaw. Yes. Okay. And I don't know if there's like wings or like secondaries mm-hmm. in Harry Potter, but... My secondary would be probably Slytherin. Okay. But I definitely would not put myself in the category of like primary Slytherin. It doesn't work. But if there's any secondary influence, that was what it would be. I like it. I'm learning all sorts of things about people through that. Yeah. I think that's interesting. What's yours? And then judging them. <laughs> trying not to. Um, mine is Gryffindor. Okay. And I'm yellow. Yellow in the color code. So we're, our thing is fun, right? Fun, yeah. And pleasure. Fun and pleasure. And then I can't remember my Enneagram. And let's see what else. I identify as female daughter, sister, sometimes mom. Not sometimes in the way of like I am not their mom sometimes, but it depends on how deep that identity goes. Sure. Um, homeowner, pet owner, partner, 
monogamous despite my best efforts and hetero despite my best efforts. <laughs> well, you know, I think probably that like a good, solid, thoughtful, intentional exploration of monogamy and or sexuality is is great. I think that's I, that deserves an applause. <laughs> Thanks. Well, it's, I mean, those are my though. I can't even say those are my. Yeah, those are my behaviors. But in mm. my head, I have designed a whole world where I have lots of partners and they're all genders and it's a great fun old time. It's just that that's not what I end up behaving like. Yeah, like In I my mean, head, I also have a Pinterest-style house and a beautiful <laughs> garden and a dog that doesn't need 24-hour care. But in reality, yeah. in I love head, my garage sales. have a recording studio and maybe like a... <laughs> Like a gold record, a record that went gold, something like that. Ooh. But that's just, you know, that's just my head. That's not how it works out in the real world. But the my reason for saying that it deserves an applause is that in a society that wants everyone or I guess encourages everyone to blindly accept heterosexuality and monogamy, it's pretty important to be in a position where you've interrogated those identities and come to the conclusion that that's where you you actually you know, authentically and autonomously reside as opposed to you're just accepting those identities because that's what was laid out for you. When have you done that recently? Interrogated an identity. Hmm. I'm asking myself that as well. I'm trying to think. I very recently considered, I guess I'm, yeah, I'm considering applying for a writer's retreat. And yes, it's very exciting. And the writer's retreat is specifically for women, trans people, and non-binary people of color. And so it creates this space where those individuals can workshop and, you know, share space and ideas and be creative sort of to the exclusion of other types of people in order to foster that community and that uh, shared experience. Yeah. And the reason I haven't already applied is that I – I am interrogating in this situation my whiteness. So I shared in the beginning, I identify as a person of mixed race background. Mm-hmm. And that's really important to me. It's a huge part of my life. The Spanish language and traditional Venezuelan foods, like my whole mom's side of my family is Venezuelan. And it's been a part of my upbringing and my experience. And yet I am white. I also have a white parent and I am very white presenting, white passing. Mm -hmm. And so I'm not really sure what to make of that in this context because I'm very much on a personal level interested in being a part of this this writer's workshop and this retreat. And at the same time, very aware of and wanting to be very conscientious of the potential for my presence to be detrimental to the purpose or to the experience of the other people. So being a person who's white, I have privileges that are not afforded to other people who especially visually do not look white. And also, historically, white people are the oppressor, you know, especially in this country, but in general, um, thinking more about like people from Spain and conquering South America and that kind of thing. So that's sort of hard when you're trying to cultivate a space that's very 
specific to identities and experiences. And then for me as someone who, yes, I have that background and I also have this other background of being white and having a white parent. So where do I fit? Do I add to this element or do I take away from it? And how do I make sure that if I'm taking away from it, that I step back and that I make sure that space is available for someone else? Do you get to put that in your application? That's what that's where I'm at right now. I think that's my current theory for approaching it is that I would just like to say that and then allow the kinds of people who have that expertise and also experience of having they run the retreat and they've been there and they know what it is to then be able to have them decide uh, since they have just better tools to decide, I think. Do you want to hear my experience? Yeah, I do. So when I was, I think, 27, I had my first foster daughter, and she didn't stay with me until she was 18. And so there was this time where I didn't have a kiddo, but I had been a mom, Mm. and I was self-employed, and there was a contest being presented by a local magazine saying that we will give you business classes and advertising— for mom entrepreneurs, and they just had this open call to anyone who identified as a mom and an entrepreneur. And I decided that I was going to put forth an application with that information mm-hmm. out there and let people choose. And I remember the people who coordinated that um, contacted me and said, You know, we've had some pushback on people saying you're not a mom. And I had to really pull it apart myself more and say, but am I not? If if someone's kid goes to treatment or to jail or moves in with another parent or dies, do you suddenly not become a mom? Mm. Or is it because the identity is foster and that, that culture is more of a temporary mindset for a lot of people? Mm-hmm. Um, but I kept letting it go and really turning it over to the community to decide because they they voted and then they chose and And I won, which is really exciting. That is exciting. Yeah. And I think also what it did, though, is helped me to understand my relationship to motherhood a little bit more Mm. and be more open to what guardianship and parenthood and all of that looks like in a, you know, in a diverse way. Right. I really appreciate you sharing that story (laughs) with me. I think there's a lot there. That's a cool story and a cool experience and congratulations on winning that contest well thank you and on motherhood and entrepreneurship yeah I mean it made a huge difference in my life cool because I got to learn a lot from that but also you know do that introspection on identity and decide what that meant to me Mm -hmm. so you you get to do the same thing and it's a writing workshop it makes sense to write it down yes it does and to be perfectly fair They also choose applicants based on merit. You have to submit a writing selection with your application. So maybe it's the case that like all this stuff I'm worrying about with my identity is a limiting factor. And maybe it's the case that it's not. And also my particular writing at this point in my life wouldn't earn me a spot in the first place. So I think it's also probably just mixed with some apprehension about the entire process of of vulnerability and potential for rejection. Mm. Tough. It's tough. It's tough being creative and it's tough when you are self-employed or you want to be self-employed. I think those, at least for me, those things are related to each other. 
do you think it is more comfortable to be rejected on the identity front versus the merit oh, front? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Because it's not something you can help, right, your identity. So if you're being rejected, because it's not even hardly rejection. It's more like disqualification. It's like you can't, you're not going to be able to come into this space because it's not for you. I can 100% hear that and take that and be very... As a person of a lot of privilege. Oh, absolutely. But I'm just saying in, in general, I think a space not being for me is something that I understand. Whereas, you know, something that I'm doing not being good enough, there's a lot more there that I'm kind of, I have less pre-preparation for that than I do to be able to acknowledge and accept when something is not for me. Interesting. We could unpack that for hours. I have a related question, though. Okay. If you, you're, you're saying that you're 50% Venezuelan uh, or I, somewhere. Yeah, I have my mom's Venezuelan. I think percentages get a little sticky because her, her mom is from Venezuela, born there, raised there, two Venezuelan parents. Her dad, I'm not totally sure about all of his heritage and lineage. I think he's French, mostly French or partly French, mm -hmm. but so he's white, not like U.S. American white, but mm -hmm. white. And so I don't know, I guess if you were going to calculate a percentage, 25% would probably be the most accurate guess. Okay. So that's similar for me. My father's mother was Japanese. Okay. And everyone else would be European mm -hmm. descent. So I wonder at what number... It becomes something that I get to identify publicly with or personally or culturally. What is acceptable? What is not? Et cetera. Right? I think, too, I think that's one of the major. So, like, in the conversations I have had, like, in social justice uh, spaces. So, in particular, I'm thinking about a retreat that I went on. And I was in a focus group where we were talking about being mixed race or having, like, multiple backgrounds from a racial or ethnic perspective and the conversations I've heard have basically been like it's not fair to look at it as numbers because I'm a whole person you know I'm mm -hmm. not 50 percent of this thing and 50 percent this thing I'm just 100 percent me mm -hmm. but at the same time yeah it can also be I think it's sticky I think it's really convoluted because it depends I think on why you're asking so for example when I was in high school I took a, I think it's like a, it was either like a state test or it was a national test. I'm not really sure. It was some sort mm -hmm. of standardized test. And you have to mark all your demographic information yeah. in it. Oh, gosh. Right. <laughs> I, I'm having this. <laughs> yep. I know. Exactly. Yep. So I, I marked everything that I would normally mark. I marked that, I, like they give you usually multiple boxes. Mm -hmm. So I marked white and mm -hmm. I marked Hispanic. Mm-hmm. And moved on with my life, pretty much. And then, I guess, I can't remember the name of the test, but I do remember the name of the award. So somebody probably knows the name of the test. But I got this certificate, like, a while later, that said I was a National Hispanic Merit Scholar. And this was a very odd thing. It was an odd moment. Because in the one way, I felt very affirmed. Mm -hmm. And in the other way, I was like, is this... 
right? Like, is yeah. should this be mine? I didn't, I wasn't sure. I didn't really know. I still don't know. I think this is a perfect metaphor for what it feels like for me to be a person of like mixed, mixed race identity and background. And it actually said, I like dug a little deeper. It actually said that the award was for individuals who were 25% or more Hispanic, which I thought was just fascinating. But I was like, okay, well, I mean, I guess that's my answer, right? Mm -hmm. I'm qualified based on this interesting mathematical <laughs> breakdown. Uh, but it didn't really make it any, like, it didn't simplify the emotional experience at all. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm. we're talking about it in terms of racialized groupings, but I'm also thinking about it from a sexuality perspective where it's like, okay, mm. how many partners do I have to have in order to have a poly identity? And how many times do I have to go down on a vulva in order to have a lesbian identity? Or, or right? Or Zero. not? Exactly. Exactly. Because the person doesn't Zero even have to have a vulva. Yeah. Exactly. There's a lot. Yeah. Zeros all across the board. But I think board. we do that. There's a certain amount of 25% or less. Right. I don't, I haven't earned this identity. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think just to kind of, I guess, put a cap on my feelings about the mixed race situation for my personal identity. It's, so my mom has a white parent and she lived in Venezuela until she was 12. Mm -hmm. So her entire childhood, she's in Venezuela. She came to America speaking very little English and was, you know, like bullied and made fun of for that. And so my mom, even though she's also mixed, had this very like racialized othered experience as as a kid. And then, you know, her family is a huge part of my life. And so I think for me... I, I struggle with the 25% thing a little bit. Like like you were saying, I haven't earned the right to this. And at the same time, my experience tells me that I'm allowed to, you know, embrace these things. This is my family, my language, my food, my people. Mm -hmm. Like these are this this is the people I want to seek out and be around and identify with. And there's this whole privilege with the idea that I don't have to, which I try to be really thoughtful about mm -hmm. and at the same time I want to and so there's that balance it's I think it's always just going to be a balance and a, and a wrestling match because it's not simple you know it isn't one or the other it's both and yeah well because I think we're both in the same space of not wanting to take away absolutely from those that don't maybe have white passing privilege but also not wanting for me at least not wanting to discount the experiences of those members of my family. So if I don't mark Asian on that standardized test, did I just totally discount the fact that my grandmother was put in an internment camp? Like, right. And that, that that was shitty and that her children were all uh, bullied because of their racialized grouping? Like, what? So, yeah. Uh, mm, the knots. Okay, what about a different identity? What about a sex one? A sex one. Let's pull it apart. Okay, you pick. Well, yeah, let's go into orientation. Sexual orientation. Because I, I alluded to earlier, right, like, oh my gosh, am I a lesbian? Depends on how much pussy I've eaten. But it has nothing to do with whether nope. or not you've gone down on those genitals because nope. 
people have different bodies and different gender identities and then it has nothing to do with behavior because you could be sexually attracted to someone and never perform oral sex. Right. Yeah, and also because you could identify as lesbian and also identify as asexual and not be interested in sex at all from Ooh. a sex perspective. Okay, tell me about your relationship. It. Well, I guess, I don't know. I guess there is the division between a romantic orientation and a sexual orientation. But I also think that in most cases, they're not so separated unless you specifically separate them out. If you tell someone that you identify as like basically homosexual and heteroromantic, mm -hmm. then that's one that means one thing. But if you leave one of those out, mm -hmm. then people will fill in the blank with the other thing. So I think it's also complicated. Like if you just say, I'm a lesbian then people are going to assume that you have romantic and sexual relationships with women. And so, yeah, it gets complicated because there's an assumption there. So you either have to add a word to clarify mm -hmm. or you go with the assumption or, yeah. But anyways, I think you can identify. Let me just go back to what I said in the very beginning. Okay. So I feel like this is my biggest thing as a person who loves words. Oh, yay. Let's my do this. official position is that language is meant to serve us. And that we can and should use language to the extent that it helps simplify communicating our experience and that we shouldn't be like held to a standard, especially by others, but we also do this to ourselves, that we have to behave a certain way or meet a certain set of criteria based on language that we're using to describe ourselves. So if you say that you're a lesbian... That doesn't mean that when you have feelings for a person who's a man that you should avoid them or mm. suppress them or not act on them just because you've identified it as, as a lesbian. Does that make sense? The yeah. language is meant to serve you, not to confine you. That's, that's beautiful. That's my position. Aw. Okay. So let's play it out. Okay. The person identifies as a lesbian. Okay. And then they have feelings for a man. Sure. And then they act on those feelings for a man. Uh huh. Do they get to call themselves and identify as a lesbian? Oh, the word <laughs> I'm getting like my blood pressure is rising at the word get. This yeah. is like exactly kind of what I'm trying to say. Like nobody should be able to tell anybody what they do or don't get to mm -hmm. identify as. I find that to be just reprehensible. So, oh, I totally agree. Oh, I'm no, using yeah. the language because that's, that's how, how we say it. I agree. But Socially, that's how it's presented. Right. So my thoughts on that are you get to identify as whatever you want. I think probably the person is likely to interrogate that identity, but it's not necessary that they change it if they don't feel like something else works better. Plus, let's say they were going to change their identity. There's a whole period of time where they're maybe learning about other identities or they're talking to people who identify in certain ways or they're trying to sort out, like, is this experience common among lesbians? And if it isn't, what kind of people is it common among? And do I share things with those people? Do those words feel good to me? And while they're going through that process, they're probably still going to be identifying as a lesbian because what else would they be doing? You know, that, that's the term they were using. So while they're exploring or interrogating, I, yeah, it would probably stay the same. So I think, you know, if you have an experience that causes you to wonder if a word doesn't fit you anymore, you might feel compelled to interrogate that identity. But it's not a necessity. It's more about 
is the language still serving you? And you're the one who gets to decide that. Yes. And I would say that to me in all, you know, like all episodes of Sexplanations, the YouTube show and the podcast, that I am really mindful of context and intent. And if a person is, their intent is to bully or harm that cultural space by taking an identity that they don't actually have, they don't identify that way, but they are owning it to spite that group, that's that's not okay with me. Hmm. I can't, I agree. And I can't also say that I've ever seen that. You've never seen a, like a, a cis man say I'm a lesbian and demand to be called a lesbian? Only on the L word. That's the <laughs> only time I've ever seen it. And honestly, it was a very long time ago, so I don't remember that much about that situation. Uh-huh. You have? That's a common thing? Yeah. Uh-huh. Not, I wouldn't say it's a common thing, but I think it's a thing that people do or interesting people say, yeah, I mm-hmm. I agree. I Yeah, I just haven't had a lot of personal experience with that. That sounds not good. Like you're just trying to make a problem for somebody else. Well, I think a lot of it came out with the um, the bathroom debate mm, oh, and okay. people saying, well, I'm just going to identify as a woman and they don't identify okay. as a woman, but they are. I'm with you abusing the labeling systems that we use to form a culture. Sure. And that I'm not okay with. No, that's very problematic. Yeah. For me, I've changed the way I identify my sexuality twice. Ooh. And both times it was kind of, uh, okay, I'm not sure that this is serving me anymore. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of complicated too because there's this pressure that one can feel toward having to, I guess, update everyone. Like, here's, hey, friends and family. I know you've been thinking about me as this, but in fact, that's not so accurate. And then that can be so awkward, too. So I didn't want to be, I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to have to talk to everybody about it. So I really just didn't. And that was my personal choice. I was like, I'm going to change the way I identify because that makes sense to me. I'm just going to start using this new term that I use And if somebody asks me about it, I'm open to a conversation. That's different. But I don't want to have to send out like a bulletin updating everybody (laughs) about my my various identities so that they, you know, have their black notebooks, Mm -hmm. you know, updated. So, And how did that change settle in, I guess? Because there's a difference between choosing something and having that change occur maybe within you. Am I articulating that? Say more about that. So I guess I'm trying to get at that you probably didn't make a choice to have a new identity, but you, you, the change happened within you and you made a choice to express that yeah, or to own that, yeah. whatever that change ha- was. I don't know. No, Maybe yeah. not. No, I get what you're saying. I would say that more so than like choosing, like I'm going to be this now, it was more along the lines of, I was learning more about myself. So one of the times I changed uh, the word I used to describe my sexuality was in high school. Mm -hmm. And the other one was in college. And so I'm experiencing new and different things. I'm exposed to different ideas, different people, different like scholarly work, different literature, Mm -hmm. language. And I'm more than anything realizing that What I was before describing, so in this case, uh, I used to identify as a lesbian. What I was before describing my sexuality as lesbian was actually just 
sort of a finite picture of my sexuality and Mm -hmm. with more knowledge, more experience, seeing my sexuality behave in more situations, I realized that lesbian just didn't describe the whole picture. I had been describing the part I saw. And then as I saw more, I realized that that word, it wasn't so effective to describe what I now understood to be my sexuality. So I would say my knowledge of my sexuality grew and evolved. And so my language for describing it grew and evolved as opposed to changed, if that makes sense. Yeah, I like it. And so do you have an up and coming term that you are up and coming. like that's percolating something that takes the etymology that you love or what you want to have your identity marker be? Queer is comfortable for me right okay. now. It's not something that Yeah, it isn't something that it feels like it's sitting poorly. So the biggest reason that I started to look at my identity when I was identifying as lesbian is that I was doing a ton of work exploring my gender and trying to learn about that and just make sure that I could speak about my experience in the best way possible with the Mm -hmm. tools I had. And the common definition of lesbian is a woman who, you know, is interested in other women. And I realized that I just didn't, I never thought about the fact that identifying as lesbian had this sort of subtle implication of my own gender. Yeah. And once my gender became something more complicated, then I started to feel like also I was understanding other people's gender in a more complicated way. And, you know, woman who's interested in other women, just it stopped describing me and it stopped describing the people I was interested in. And so I was like, all right, so it's time for me to give this language back to the people who it serves and to find something else. And queer works really well for me because it's a conversation opener. You know, it doesn't mean anything really besides I'm not straight. And if you want to know any other detail about my sexuality, that would be something that you would have to actually talk to me to understand. It's not you're not going to be able to have a very clear idea of of my relationships or my interests sexually without, you know, a dialogue. And I appreciate that. I appreciate that it makes room for more conversation. So now I'm super curious about reclaiming words that have been derogatory in the past mm-hmm. because in all forms of identity, this happens where somebody uses a word to put down a culture and then hopefully it gets reclaimed or it dies. Mm -hmm. And with queer as your model, what are your thoughts on that? I know that there are like living human people (laughs) who feel very, very passionately that queer is not a word that should be used to describe oneself Mm -hmm. or especially a group of people. And the reason they feel that way is because that they have had the word queer used as a weapon against them. Mm -hmm. And some people, you know, even in the context of a slur being yelled at them in the midst of a hate crime or, you know, while they're being harmed or aggressed upon by people who are not accepting of, of their identity. So I respect that. And I want to make sure that to the best of my ability, I'm aware of it. And I think I'm coming from a place where I've I came out for the first time 13 years ago. No, wait, 14 years ago. Mm -hmm. And since then, 
queer has always been a term that was available to me. So it's not something that through my experience and my life that I have felt that I was a part of reclaiming it, if that makes sense. I think the heavy reclaiming happens when people who have had uh, a slur used against them choose to be empowered by it. Mm -hmm. And I think that work was done before me. Um, And so generationally, I'm... I benefit from that work that was done by people to reclaim queer, and I'm sensitive to the fact that not everybody agrees with that choice. I use the word not so much because it's political. I think reclaiming is inherently political, um, but more so just because it fits me. I like it, and I think I'm also there's a there's a heavy kind of privilege undertone too that I have the option to like it because it was never used as a weapon against me. Yeah. So those are my thoughts on that. Yeah. And I'm in the generation that is kind of in between the two. Mm -hmm. It was definitely reclaimed by the time that I became cognizant of what was going on. But at the same time, I was very um, aware of the people that that was so hurtful um, toward. And so I had to be very careful about when it was used and by whom. Um, I was doing HIV prevention work at the time. And so you have the generation that is, they were affected by the virus and they were part of the LGBT community and all the horrible, horrible things that happened during those years. And I wouldn't ever say the word. I wouldn't um, have it so that the younger generations were saying it to them. Mm. It was like very considerate of those spaces. And I think that younger generations have that wherewithal. I hope so. Um, but when I am in other spaces with the the reclaimed um, mentality about it, I, you know, that's everyone's favorite word to use to mm-hmm. describe themselves, to to not be so boxed in with gender and orientation, but to have something that shows their unique flavor. Yeah. It's a special word in the sense that, like I said, it's very vague. It can It's multidimensional. It can have pretty much any meaning that you want to apply to it under the umbrella of I don't identify as straight. And so I think that's appealing to a lot of people who feel that sexuality is just not so simple as you like men or you like women and that's it, you know, and and so the the nuance to it of being able to feel like you can kind of carve your own space out of it, it's very exciting. You know, this word gets to mean what I want it to mean. It's it's almost like the definition of it is fluid enough that each person feels like they're staking their own claim mm-hmm. on on the word when they choose to identify with it. And I think that's positive. It's positive for me. Um, but I also recently was invited to an event that was called Queers and Beers. And it was like this get together for LGBTQ community at a brewery. And I witnessed that in the like event page for the event, that there were people who were not pleased at all about the use of the word queer in the name of the event. And, you know, were pretty vehemently saying, why would I want to have a beer with someone who thinks that it is acceptable to use this slur in the name of the event. And that was a new thing for me. That's not really something that I've been around or experienced. I don't have any any people in my life who are who identify as LGBT 
that are from a generation or two above me. I mean, maybe one generation, some mentors and leaders from my university, Mm -hmm. but nobody any older than that. And so that wasn't something I really, like how you were saying you had firsthand experience with that, and I really didn't. Time for some conversations. Yeah. We could do that as extra credit homework. Okay, great. Have, Have conversations with members of the LGBT community that would have yeah, yeah, been around when that was used as a slur. I, I mean, it's used as a slur still. Sure, but it's so much. Okay, to me, I definitely am not going to speak for anybody else. For me, it's just so empty. I'm just, it's almost laughable. It's like, that's really adorable that you think that that word is going to hurt my feelings. Because mm-hmm. it's not. It's my word. What are you going to do with it that is going to be hurtful? There are way, like, for me, there are way worse things that people could say. And so... That's where I'm at with that. But, of course, yes, it is still used in that way. Just in my experience, it really actually does lose power based on the fact that it belongs to me first. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's another thing we could talk for hours Mm -hmm. about. Language, where where it comes from, where it's going. I I keep wondering where we're going to be, especially with gender, because I don't think that we have – a solid foundation for where we're at right now. I think we're using the old language to communicate new concepts mm. and it's not a good match. We need new words. I can't remember who it was. It may have been Havelock Ellis. One of one of the early sexologists came up with the words homosexuality and heterosexuality. And he said when he was doing it, he knew that that was not a good fit. And mm. yet those were the ones that stuck with society. And I think that... Um, Gosh, it's going to it's going to be so much fun to see where it goes, but this transition period of we need to utilize the words we have cuz that's our language mm-hmm. to get to concepts that we're not fully grounded in. It's tricky. It is tricky. It's very tricky. Also though, fun in my opinion mm. and exciting like you were saying. Mm-hmm. There's just so many cool things that can happen when you're willing to be like thoughtful and playful with language. And trying to describe concepts in the best way that you can with what you've got. And, and I think especially in the culture and the age of the internet, those things just take new form and evolve so rapidly because they happen in these micro communities, like these little niche spaces. Like I'm thinking about like 2012 Tumblr was just like a <laughs> queer and gender mess culture. It was just like, we have feelings. How do we talk about it? And so seeing things happen there where like it's a a post with like 20 different people's thoughts and like what comes out of it is like, what about this? That's always very exciting to me. Mm -hmm. I'm like, holy moly, these people are collaborating and it's so beautiful. Yeah. Well, because of language, right? Right. The the hack together words that allow us to have the conversation so that we can continue to grow it. it it's very powerful. I remember sitting at the kitchen table with um, a friend of mine who was doing a lot of this research and work, and we were saying that I was saying that I wanted language to go from where it has been, which is inefficient and ineffective to this whole new set that's perfect and glowing and flawless. Mm. And he was like, yeah, Lindsay, you want to take everyone to the edge of the cliff and push them off and see if they fly. <laughs> and they can't do that. They have to have steps on the way to get there. Like, <laughs> but then we end up using these words that are faltered 
and so be it Mm. because those are the words that we communicate with, right? They serve us to get to the next place. Yeah. I think also sort of a a human, a very human desire to not change is hard to reconcile with that. Mm. So like people who say, for example, why should I have to learn this whole new set of words just to make this quote, this is not my own feelings, quote, small portion of the population, unquote, feel better. Mm -hmm. And it's like, for me, it's like, wow, what a limited way of seeing this situation. But okay, also, okay, if it truly is the case that your life is so isolated from people who would benefit from you making that change, then I guess that's for you to decide. But that's always, I think, a hard element for me is people who are just like, I lazy, <laughs> lazy, intellectually lazy. No, I don't quote that. Um, people who are like, you know what? I don't care about this. I hear you saying that this is important to you. I don't think it's important. And I re- I resent the assertion that I should find it important. That's always this very like wide eye for me moment. I'm like, wow, okay. But I mean, I'm not going to try to tell that person something different than what they're saying, but I do find it very interesting. Yeah. Un- well, yeah, unfortunate. And unfortunate. It takes practice. It absolutely does yep. to to rewrite some of those things in your mind. Or um, I, I think it, we are so cued from an early age to read things like jawline and posture mm. and um, like whether or not a person crosses their legs, et cetera. We're like constantly paying attention to that nuanced human behavior to send signals mm-hmm. so that we can categorize. And then you go in this box and then mm-hmm. I know how to treat you. And it it's worth it if you do it to change and grow and strengthen yourself with practice. Mm-hmm. Because then, like you said, I'm not just putting myself into this prescription or this formula and I can behave in all sorts of ways and allow people to do that without feeling a sense of resentment because they didn't act out like I expected them to. Yeah. Work it. Work it. Cool. All right. So kegels. Feel your kegels if you're able. squeeze. Want to do some? Okay. You might have to give me maybe like a a quick tutorial. I'm familiar with the concept, but... Mm -hmm. Maybe sure. Some description I'm happy good. to do that. Okay. I've started seeing a physical therapist, so I'm going to learn how to do them hopefully better than the ones that I've made up in my mind Great. or read about. Because basically, you're using the same muscles that you would to start or stop urination. Okay. Your pubococcygeus or your PCs are that pelvic flooring that holds together all your genitals, your anus, okay. urethra, et cetera, and decides whether or not you urinate, defecate, contract. Sure. Yeah. And if you work them, then your orgasms will be better. Okay. Got it. Yeah. Thanks for the base knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, so you would basically just do one by clenching like you're stopping urination mm-hmm. and then relaxing. But unless you have to pee or you push the pee out because you decide to pee on the furniture, <laughs> then you won't actually urinate. Sure. It's yeah. just uh, like a phantom yeah. stopping of a phantom urination pee. stream. Phantom pee. Yeah. Great. And so we'll do a count of eight up and then a count of eight down. Okay. So 16 total. Yeah. Okay. Or I'll just count to 16. Sure. Do you I want me see. to? I'll, I'll list an identity. Okay. And then you list an identity and then I'll list one and we'll each do eight. Okay. New ones. Good. Ones that we haven't said so far. Oh my gosh. Nothing we've said so far. All right. I'm excited. Let's go. Hmm. 
We can do this. I gotta think. Okay. Ambivert. Ambivert. Is that like introvert, extrovert, but amp both? Yeah. Okay. Cyclist. Um, gardener. Farmer. Um, ex wanting to wait until marriage. Like former want person who wanted to wait until marriage. Okay. Catholic. Currently? No, I'm not. I'm not Catholic. I'm just listing identities. <laughs> Do they have to be my identities? Well, we got to go all the way back to the beginning on that. In that case. <laughs> That's really funny. I'm not a farmer. I know a farmer, but I'm not one. Oh. I'm not a cyclist either. I have a bike. This is great. I'm glad you're just putting out identities. You didn't say they okay. had to be yeah, my perfectly. identities. All right, I'll, I'll change. I'll change direction. Okay. Are you clenching too? Yeah. Okay, every me time. Too. Good. Okay. I'm still clenching. Oh, you just, just hold it the whole time. I'm. I just. You am. said relax. Just fun for fun. Okay. <laughs> okay. Artist. Oh, that's a good one. Um, faculty brat. That means that I was raised at a boarding school. Interesting. U.S. citizen. Daughter of the revolution that I guess has not gone through official certification. Okay. And I don't even know if it's a good thing anymore or not. I don't. I only have like one bell in the distance ringing about what that means. I think it means that my relatives came over on the Mayflower. Oh. <laughs> I mean, I mean, they were fleeing religious persecution, so that's hard to fault. But it sounds like that they did not do some great stuff once they got here. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Reader. Oh, I'm definitely not that. Um, researcher. Lifelong learner. Hmm. Doctor of human sexuality. Oh, I know. Polymath. Polymath. Mm-hmm. Is that like a polyglot except for math? So you speak sort multiple of. mathematical languages? So the root poly, obviously meaning many. In this context, math is, I don't know what the like reason for using the word math is, but a polymath is someone who has like skills and interests in a bunch of different areas. So like someone who's a playwright and a philosopher and an engineer would be a polymath. But Just we don't know why math. I don't know why math. If you know, let us know in the comments. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Do. That's fun. I think we've done way more than in, than 16. Probably. Any others that we should throw out there? I'm the oldest of like some odd number of grandchildren, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, something Whoa. like that. That's a lot. I'm from Colorado. I'm a Coloradan. I'm from Ohio, mm. but I was born in New York. I was born in Virginia, but I don't identify with that. Yeah, me neither. <laughs> I didn't live there very long, that's why. Mm, yeah. I feel like that's a pretty decently rounded picture. Good job, us. Good job, us. Don't judge us. Just love us the way we are. <laughs> Give us room to have all sorts of growing identities. Yay. Yay. Okay, so sex or cut it homework. Assignments are not always bad, so here's some sex credit. I would like them to talk to people from another generation, but if there's something else you want to add... I think that's good homework. And I think, too, talking to someone of an older generation with an identity that you hold. So, like, for me, it would be important to talk to someone of an older generation who identifies as LGBT. But 
for some other person, there might be like a more salient identity that having that conversation with an elder would be more beneficial. Okay. You want me to hook you up with people? Heck yeah. You know some? Yeah. Yeah. Of course I do. <laughs> Great. Do you know people who are over 40? What? That's <laughs> Wait, is that the generation? I thought it was like over like 60. Yeah, but still, there are a lot of people over 60. You know 60. them? <laughs> Wait, that are also LGBT? Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah, definitely. You definitely got to hook me Really? You don't know people that fall into those demographics? Oh my goodness. I don't. And also... I have only been in Montana for like a year, so I don't know that many total people of all age brackets. Well, have you been to the community center? One time, and they were gone for lunch. Oh. I'm so excited. I'm going to introduce you to all the people. Great. Mm-hmm. Sucks for credit homework for me. Yeah. Do you want to introduce me to someone? Okay. Who? Do you, do you know anyone over 60? Uh, my grandmas. Okay. I'll meet your grandmas. Okay. What identity are they going to share with you? I don't know. I'll just talk to them. Okay. We'll trade. Great. Excellent. We've done our jobs. Lovely. Thank you for being on this Explanations podcast. Thanks for having me. It was a blast. Good. I'm so happy you're here. Thank you also to Callie from Cinema Studios for helping to Complexly for production and Count Boogie for the jingles. And Corinne Parle. I'm still learning. I'm still learning.